Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Megan Murphy. This week, we'll be talking about the proposed breakup of the Financial Services Authority. The consultation closes today with many issues over who is responsible for what is still unclear. Then we'll look at the Financial Reporting Council's stewardship code, which goes live today. It's designed to ramp up investors' engagement with companies in the aftermath of the financial crisis. After that, we'll hear from our New York office in our regular U.S. banking update. This week, we've had better-than-expected bank results, a widening crisis on U.S. mortgage foreclosures, and a record SEC settlement by the former Countrywide Financial CEO, Angelo Mazzillo. And we're going to finish off this week's show with a look at the supposed exodus from London by the bankers. Peter Sands, the head of Standard Charter, reiterated his belief this weekend that London is an increasingly unattractive place for financial services companies. And we'll look at whether people are really heading for the exits. I'm joined this week by Miles Johnson, our investment correspondent, Brooke Masters, our chief regulation correspondent, and we'll have Justin Baer joining us from New York. First off, let's look at the FSA proposed breakup. Brooke, what are you hearing about this? There's been a ton of confusion swirling, particularly about who's going to look at serious crime, economic crime, and who's going to be responsible for that. Can you give us a background and sort of what the current proposal is and... The Treasury brought out its initial consultation in June, and it basically splits the FSA up into two different bodies. The Prudential Regulatory Authority is part of the Bank of England, and it will basically look at big banks and insurance companies for safety and soundness and their impact on the overall financial system. The Consumer Protection and Markets Authority basically looks at how everybody treats their customers and also looks after the safety and soundness of smaller things like investment advisors and smaller insurance companies. The problem is, what do you do with enforcement? The original consultation basically suggested that the the coalition government was going to try and create a serious economic crime agency, perhaps wrapping in the Office for Fair Trading and the Serious Fraud Office and SOCA, which basically does wiretaps and things like that. And the combination seems not to be moving very quickly. There's a big funding problem in that that the Financial Services Authority is self-funded by the industry. Everything else is paid for by the government. And so wrapping those two together creates a, a big problem with who pays. And how does this fit in with the announcement we had last week in the supposed bonfire, the Quangos, that the OFT and the Competition Commission are going to be merged? Because as you and I have discussed and, and we've discussed with outside people several times, these aren't agencies that on the on economic crime have really covered themselves in glory in the past. I mean, it's been one of the FSA's biggest actual weak areas until you know recent years when they've picked up the pace. But how does the merger of those two bodies plus the supposed merger of all these other bodies, how is this all going to work? I think yes, the bonfire of the Quangos suggests, in fact, that the serious crime agency, economic crime agency, is going nowhere fast, and that enforcement is likely to stay within the FSA. And perhaps the best sign of that is the FSA is internally breaking itself up early next year in preparation for the legal breakup, which won't happen until 2012. And what they've done is they've kept enforcement intact on its own, reporting to the head of the FSA because they don't know what to do with it. And I think that suggests that eventually it's going to survive as a as a 
complete body and not get combined with these other agencies, which have had a lot of problems. And another controversial part of this is the where on earth the UKLA is going to sit. Is there any light expected to be shed on that? Well, today is just the closing of the consultation, mm. and it's everybody's reactions. The, the uh, reaction to the UK listing authority and where it goes has been uniformly negative because the latest proposal has been to put it in the Financial Reporting Council, which basically oversees accountants. And everyone says it's insane to put the people who control listing in with accountants instead of with the people who control markets, who are actually, of course, where you list your stuff. So I think my guess is after that consultation, there will at least be a rethink. We have gotten no guidance that they're moving there yet, but it is clear that the reaction is quite negative. Last question on this. If the enforcement powers of the FSA as the FSA is currently constituted remain with what we now call the FSA. Are you saying that that will then fall sort of under the Prudential Regulatory Authority? Will it fall in the Consumer Protection? I mean, it's not going to be called the FSA anymore. No, I think eventually it's going to end up in Consumer Protection and Markets, assuming that survives, because that's that's the bulk of the cases, because the vast majority of ways people get in trouble with the FSA are for mistreating their customers, failing to have systems, you know, operational issues. And that is clearly Consumer Protection and Markets. Insider dealing is clearly a markets problem. I suppose if you failed to keep enough capital and, and violated your capital requirements, that would somehow create a problem because the Prudential Regulatory Authority wouldn't have its own enforcement arm. But that's that's so rare that I think it makes far more sense for it all to go to consumer protection and markets. Well, it's all very uh, interesting. So, so much still to be decided on a lot of these issues. It is it is interesting. And let's turn to Miles now, our investment expert on uh, this new stewardship code. And, you know, the, as Brooke and I know, the banks have gotten a tremendous amount of flag for the financial crisis, obviously. But also we've seen investors in the big banks also get their share of blame for not spotting some of these problems earlier, for not failing to exercise more authority over whether it's the size of pay, over decisions that were being made. Now, obviously, this applies to companies outside the financial services sector. But tell us what it's going to mean, the implementation of this new stewardship code. Well, the stewardship code, to some extent, has its sort of um, genetic background in the banking crisis and, you know, the sort of things like the Walker Report and um, other studies and commentary on where investors went wrong in uh, the build up to the financial crisis. And what it really does is, for the first time, give an broad outline or series of guidance um, sort of measures to institutional investors on how they can actually start to engage with companies, be they banks, you know, or other companies of financial services, or, you know, a sort of widget maker. Effectively, there's always been this slight problem in the UK with um, investors working together, although they are allowed to collaborate and, you know, talk to each other, and in some cases are slightly encouraged to, they also have to be careful of concert party rules. And there are other pitfalls, um, which means, you know, when I'm I speak to some fund managers, they always say, you know, we have to be very, very careful about that. So what we're going to see here is um, tomorrow, uh, the FRC is going to put um, up a list of the institutions, global asset managers and pension funds, which have publicly pledged to support the stewardship code. This is only really just the start. I mean, whether it actually works is another thing. But what we are seeing is very large institutions, people like, you know, like BlackRock, like Legal in General, State Street, you know, even CalPERS, you know, the uh, Californian State Pension Fund has pledged public support for this measure, even though it doesn't affect it, obviously, as much as other UK-based things. This is the first of its kind in the world, so we will see if it works. But it's very much um, hoped by corporate governance experts and the FRC that it will go some way to helping investors 
you know, hold hold companies to account. More but it's just a voluntary code, right? I mean, what happens if people decide not to sort of take up some of this, or how is it actually going to work in practice in terms of getting people to adhere to, or in terms of getting the principles to work? There's um, it like uh, you know, all UK corporate governance. This is a matter of, sort of comply or explain. The uh, asset managers um, are will either you know, comply with the seven points of the stewardship code, or they will explain why they don't. The problem will be with, um, obviously, a lot of the UK stock market is now not owned by UK-based asset managers. You have lots of foreign institutions, you have sovereign wealth funds, you have um, investment uh, entities from, you know, across the world, which don't necessarily always place such a high premium or, uh, or amount of attention on corporate governance concerns. So, uh, whether they will be able to get those people to sign up remains to be seen. When they first brought out the drafts of the Stewardship Code, some of the investment managers said it's just simply too expensive. You know, we are passive managers. We don't have any money to put into this. Have those concerns eased, or are we just going to see a lot of folks who you know just not doing explain, saying we can't afford it? So far, there haven't been any, uh, not that I've seen at least, any large um, UK asset managers who have you know spoken out against this and who have um you know they've all actually signed most of them have signed up so far and more and more will be signing up so although it is expensive there is always this concern over the so-called sort of free rider effect where the large guys will do it and it will cost them money and time the small guys will just not do it uh and just say we don't want to it costs us too much money but then benefit nonetheless um i think so far it seems that uh most major players have um signed up to this Great. Well, thanks for that, Miles. We're going to move on to our regular feature, Stateside, from Justin Baer in New York. Over to you now, Justin. Thanks, Megan. This week, we've had better-than-expected bank results, a widening crisis on U.S. mortgage foreclosures, and a record SEC settlement by the former countrywide financial CEO, Angelo Mazzillo. J.P. Morgan Chase and now Citigroup have released billions of dollars of loan-loss reserves, helping lift each big bank's results in a period otherwise noted for meager growth on most of their businesses. Citigroup helped lift bank stocks on Monday after the company showed fresh signs that the methodical turnaround plan is working. The bank reported a third straight quarterly profit, showed loan losses had returned to pre-crisis levels, and boldly predicted that they could begin to return some capital to shareholders in 2012. The results appeared to calm the nerves of many bank investors, still reeling from the additional details that emerged last week, on problems in the way banks such as Bank of America, GMAC, and other lenders had processed foreclosures. We'll hear from other big banks later this week, including results from Bank of America, uh, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. JP Morgan had uh, increased its reserves for both demands from investors that they buy back troubled mortgages, as well as those set aside for legal costs. These results really uh, added to investors' worries about the burgeoning uh, scandal involving the way in which uh, mortgages have been handled. And the Justice Department um, has already noted that they are looking into this, and on Friday the Financial Times reported that the SEC was as well. Um, speaking of the SEC, uh, on, on Friday they agreed with Mr. Mazzillo, the former Countrywide Financial CEO, to a six, $67.5 million settlement solving civil charges against the former executive. The agreement included a fine of $22.5 million, which was the largest levied by, on a, a corporate executive by the SEC ever. 
and also required that the former executive disgorge $45 million in gains. This total is somewhat misleading in that Bank of America itself, in part based on a risk management policy they had in, in paying the claims against individual executives, um, will in fact pay all $45 million of the disgorged uh, gains. Back to you, Megan. Thanks, Justin. And now for our final topic for today, um, something we talk about quite a bit here, is London's attractiveness on a, as a financial centre and the supposed exodus of London from the bankers. We had Peter Sands, the head of Standard Charter, and sort of widely picked up comments this week in an interview, once again saying that he thinks that London uh, attractiveness as a financial centre has been seriously damaged, uh, not only by sort of high rates of personal tax, but by increasing sort of regulation that appears to be taken farther than in other jurisdictions. I sort of was looking at this as a piece last week. And again, we're seeing, I just wonder if there's more heat than light on this still um, in terms of actual people leaving. I had someone on the phone this morning saying, you know, it's not a thousand hedge fund managers that have left. It's only a couple hundred. I just want to hear what you guys are picking up. I think there's two answers to that question. One is that London is too big and and too convenient and everybody pretty much is going to have a presence here. And as um, regulars keep pointing out, it's not like the capital rules are any nicer in Singapore. They actually have higher rules than London. Um, the pay rules are more complicated here. I think what it, what we are seeing, and I and I do hear this from people who are involved in the recruiting side, is you know, if you're looking to bring somebody over to be in charge of all of Europe and Middle East and Africa – a lot of banks and investment managers are offering a choice. Do you want to come to London, which is you know, clearly a nicer place to live than many of the other options, but you'll probably, in the end, pay more taxes, or would you rather go somewhere else? And not everybody picks London, not everybody picks overseas, but there, there at least is a choice now. It used to be, of course you brought them to London. Everybody needed to do time in London in order to be somebody in Europe. And that's becoming less clearly true. I did the calculations this weekend as, as part of a piece about uh, looking at the actual rate of tax, if you were earning two, if you were earning two hundred fifty thousand pounds, the actual difference between London and Geneva, which I was slightly surprised about, was only about ten eleven thousand pounds at the end of the day. So I think among the super high earners, we are seeing people leaving. But I just wonder if, if until you get into the really big numbers, if that's enough to make you want to move your family, you know, uproot your entire thing, look for schools, look for houses. A hiring manager I talked to last, it happens to be last week, said the thing they've noticed is, say, the Italians and the Spaniards um, will still come to London for a couple of years to establish themselves, but they've always sort of felt family pressure to go home. But many of them have stayed in London because they felt like they needed to stay in London to keep their businesses. And now the pressure's going both ways. Everybody still comes to London at some point, but they stay for three. Instead of staying for five years, they stay for three. Yeah, well, we'll have to see. I mean, I know you've seen there's been a lot of chatter about some possible global agreement on, on comp, on, on bonuses. I mean, I, as you know, we both don't think that herds, herds, holds any water, but we'll have to see what really happens in terms of, in terms of London. Well, it's going to be a big week, in, particularly on Wall Street, with several, obviously, Goldman Sachs has their earnings tomorrow and Citigroup is today. So we'll be really watching those in terms of the, uh, particularly in terms of investment banking performance and how uh, loan impairments have improved, particularly for Citi. But all that's left to do now is to thank Miles and Brooke in the studio and Justin in New York and to thank you, the audience, for listening. Banking Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. And until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.